Welcome to Human Factors Cast, your weekly podcast for human factors, psychology, and design. I almost forgot to record. What's up, everybody? It's episode 208. We're recording this live on June 3rd, 2021. Uh, this is Human Factors Cast. I'm your host, Nick Rome. I'm joined today across the internet waves by Mr. Blake Arnsdorf. Hello, Nick and the internet waves. How are you doing, man? Hey, I'm good. I know you're not great. So we'll we'll get through this. Blake is a little under the weather. That's what's going on. <laughs> it's not that he's yeah. not great mentally. He's great mentally, just physically. That's the problem, right? Anyway, <laughs> what a start to a show, guys. Uh <laughs> Let's get into some programming notes. Uh, uh, follow up to last week. If you haven't already, uh, check out our deep dive on how VR warps our perception of time. We do have a link on our website. We've been doing these uh, deep dive follow-up, um, deep dive blog articles on on some of the questions that we, or some of the stories that we talk about on the show because it's, it's never enough for Blake and I to just sit here. They're fantastically written, uh, and I say that not being the one that wrote them. They are a fantastic companion piece to the podcast. Please go check those out. Uh, as a reminder, we have opened up the Human Factors Cast Digital Media Lab. If you have any interest in that, it's a great opportunity for people looking to get involved with us. So these are students looking for real-world experience, academics looking to share your work, uh, or designers looking to work on our portfolio, any of the above, uh, or you know anything else that you might be able to think of. We might be able to find a fit for you behind the scenes here at the Human Factors Cast show. Um yeah, go check that out. Uh, anyway, we know why you're here. Let's go ahead and get into this first part of the show we like to call... That's right, it's Human Factors News. This is the part of the show where we talk about everything related to the field of human factors. This could be anything from medical privacy, security, robotics, uh, healthcare, or workplace things. What's going on this week? <laughs> so the realm of workplace things, Nick. Uh, so we have a workplace pandemic protocols are impacting our employees' behavior both inside and outside of work. Uh, so let's jump into it. Employer COVID-19 safety measures influenced worker precautions even when they were not on the clock or at the workplace, according to a new study out of Washington State University. The study found that workplace cultures that adopted COVID-19 prevention me measures, such as daily health checks and encouraging sick workers to stay home, resulted in less sick presenteeism, or going to work when you're feeling ill. The effect was both inside of outside of work, meaning fewer employees with COVID-19 symptoms would actually show up to work or go to other public places like the grocery store or gyms. Uh, the same actually held true for attitudes toward COVID-19 prevention measures recommended by the Center for Disease Dig Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, or CDC, such as mask wearing, social distancing. Employees working in companies with these strong guidelines and prevention measures were more likely to have positive attitudes towards CDC guidelines like wearing masks. So the workplace COVID-19 climate was shown to have a direct effect on shaping employee attitudes toward personal and preventative health measures and actions that the CDC was recommending, or so the study has shown. So public health officials and employees, or employers, should be aware of the impact that an organization and workplace can have on their employees outside of work. Uh, so it's not just employers having an impact on the transmission that occurs within the workplace, but they were actually influencing how people were going to act outside of work. So, Nick, this is a 
this is really like a tie all the way back to just the psychology roots that you really think about when you think of human factors in some way. So, you know, it putting specific measures in place to prevent one thing and influence behavior uh, tangentially in another. Uh, but overall, first glance, what are your gut feelings here? Your thoughts? First glance, yeah, it makes sense, and I think that you know, like, there's a lot of these stories that were like, yeah, duh, it makes sense. But if you, if you think about break break this article down, um, there's a couple things going on here, uh, mainly that the workplace culture carries on outside of your workplace, and I feel like that alone is worth talking about because. It's it's true. Like I've seen it in my own life. There's there's kind of this attitude that you take away from a certain type of culture that uh you know, like if it's very let's say there's two different types of cultures that I've worked in. There's kind of the laid back culture where um actually three. Let's just say three. There's laid back culture where uh things can get done when they get done as long as they're done by the deadline. No one's really uh you know, kind of upset about it and then there's kind of the opposite where things are very driven um you're in an environment where you don't have a whole lot of room to fail you don't have a lot of room to do the things that you need to do to work on the thing because of x y and z then there's somewhere in the middle where it's interesting because the culture of the people are laid back but yet the culture of the office is very uptight and needs things yesterday those are three very interesting cultures and i can imagine well, I've experienced how that translates to the real world because, you know, when I was working in the, let's just say I'm working in the laid back culture now, uh, and that's definitely pervaded my personal life. Um, you know, I don't feel as stressed about work, about things that are happening, except for this one instance, which I'll talk in my one more thing a little bit later, but I don't feel as stressed as say I would in another job. And I don't necessarily like, let's say I'm working on hobbies. If, if uh, if something happens in a hobby, I'm less likely to be uptight about that thing than I would be in another uh, situation. Like let's say let's say something is let's say I'm creating something, right? Let's say I'm creating a a control panel here uh, for anyone watching on video. I'm cre- I'm creating a control panel. This has been st- like a static thing for the last couple months. I haven't felt like working on it and I haven't felt driven to work on it as much, but that's also because I have a lot else going on and I'm giving myself a little bit of forgiveness. Now I've made a lot of progress on it. You can see there, but, um, it's not done and that's okay. I'm learning to live with that. And if I was in another environment, I would need to get it done. Otherwise I would feel unaccomplished. Anyway, that's my, that's my general take on it. How do you feel Blake? That you make me want to be much more introspective about how I'm approaching my outside of work life. Um, I am definitely somebody who struggles with a work life balance. I tend to stress myself really thin, but there, there's definitely something to be said for everything you just went through, like talking about the various spectrums of work. So a, a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, I worked in a very, very, um, the the way I've described it before is like militant leadership. Where like oh, I was clocking, I was clocking in. There was a, there was like I would have a basically an executive secretary who would check on me every hour, see what my progress had been. Like there was my laptop was constantly monitored for the sake of KPIs. Like it's very different 
experience that I had. And I found that I was a much more stressed and anxious person outside of work than I had ever been before. Um, So it's interesting that you've kind of thought of and realized that the impacts it has to your other kind of stuff that you do outside of work or whatever it may be. Because if I go back and think about it, something that I probably didn't pick up on was I played a lot less guitar because I would get a lot more frustrated with music production, you know, five years ago than I do now. Um, Now, a lot of that has to do with kind of changes that COVID brought along as well, though, from like I've never had a remote job and suddenly a lot of most jobs turned into remote jobs. Um, So it's definitely that has some impact as well on like my current experience in terms of workplace stuff translating um, to my everyday life, because in a lot of ways, I'm more in charge of what my workplace does um, and how I respond to it than ever before. Uh, so I, I can imagine, though, because like when, we th- when you think of work, we spend so much time working, um, whether it's whatever job it is, you're spending some large amount of time in your week, you know, contributing to it. And so culture becomes part of your everyday life, whether you're kind of really picking up on the nuance or not. But I definitely can identify with kind of practices that were put in place in my company's culture, as well as like practices for safety measures for COVID. Like it, it probably did have some pretty big influence on how I was treating the pandemic outside of work um, and ha- made me think more seriously about it for it, be, it impacting me being able to go to work and continue to work during the pandemic stuff. So I think like you mentioned at the top, it's not directly um, – you know, simple to catch this kind of thing going on, but it does make intuitive sense when you start thinking about the logical implication of some place where you go all the time or some place you're involved with all the time, influencing your life outside of work in this case. Well said. Yeah, I want to focus on what exactly does carry over, right? So we're talking about the specific um, sickness presenteeism, and when we think about this concept, it's it's largely how willing are you to go out when you're sick? Um, that's kind of the gist of it. Uh, and we can talk about this specific study, but I just want to talk about your experience with the pandemic. like, And just generally, like when you feel sick, do you go outside or do you kind of power, th- like, do you power through it, go outside, do the thing that you need to do? Uh, or like, do you take it easy and try to rest and try to get through it and tell work, buzz off, I'm trying to... Trying to re- I'm trying to rest here and get better. Yeah, it definitely depends. Um, I God think I have Where's gotten a lot. Oh, yeah, I know, right? Where is that, like, you know, it depends, it depends. button for us. It depends. But I, I guess, so I, I've definitely gotten a lot better in the last few years about, like, if I am sick, I know that the harder I go and push at work, the worse it's going to get because I'm just one of those people that it takes a while to get through being sick or whatever it is. So I try to push work off. However, I do, and this article brings up a little bit of this, I do feel that, you know, maybe ingrained stigma that not necessarily work has pushed on me, but societal pressures has pushed on me of, like, it doesn't matter if you're sick, you should still go to work anyway and go get the work done. Like, you're you're being paid. That's what you should be doing. Uh, so I definitely... I feel a lot of anxiety when I get sick, which is ironic that we're talking about this now. <laughs> when I, when, <laughs> I know. When I, when I get sick and I don't go to work, like I feel like I'm letting my teams down, like the world's going to implode. All the, the simple just like falling apart world stuff that happens to me when I get sick, right? Um, so, But I think COVID kind of changed some of that because like in instances like today, I got up, worked as long as I could before like my I just couldn't even – 
stare at anything anymore and didn't didn't want to take any more Advil for the day. Um, like and, and because of the remote capability, I was able to do that, to get stuff done, be sick, not be around anybody, and putting anybody potentially, you know, not necessarily in danger of more than just getting a cold. Uh, but it was, it was a way to kind of balance my anxiety, if you will. Um, but what about you, Nick? I mean, because I've known you in a work setting – I have a, my perspective on what you're going to say, but what do you do in terms of like when you think of this like sick sickness presenteeism or going to work when you're feeling bad? That's interesting. I'm, I'm interested to hear what you think I'm going to say, but I'll, I'll go ahead and say my thing. So um, in a previous life, I would have gone to work when I was sick. And this is largely because of the demands put on me by the job. Uh, things needed to get done. There was a lot of pressure to get the things done. There wasn't a lot of good structure in place to accommodate for those instances where somebody gets sick. I will say I switched jobs just before the pandemic started to a fully remote role. So my role already was remote by the time COVID-19 rolled around here in the States. And um, there was an interesting thing going on where I, uh, I needed to get something done and the pandemic was just starting to be um, become like a real threat, I guess. It was right before like everything shut down. You know, it was like the, this growing awareness of this thing happening. And I was already weary. Uh, and I think it's largely because of the um, the company that I work for. They were, they, you know, they were being overly cautious. There was an event that was supposed to happen like a month after I joined. And it was a big event, lots of people all over the world. And like, you know, it was right up to the line where they were like, no, we can't do this. Um, and, you know, it had, it had to happen virtually. And I think because of that experience, I was less likely to feel obligated to, you know, if I was sick, I could just basically say, hey, I can't today. I just can't. And being in a remote position, I feel like there's more forgiveness on people's parts because they understand that there are other things happening around you most of the time when you're in a remote environment. As long as you put in the hours and the work gets done, I don't think anybody really has a problem, or at least where I'm working at now, right? I'm pretty, where I'm working at now is pretty flexible in terms of work when you need to. Understand, you have a, a 20 month old and he will need things at certain times of the day and he goes to sleep at a certain time. So if you put in work after hours, that's fine too, as long as the things that you need to do get done. And I think all that contributes largely to the ability I have to say, no, I don't want to go into work when I'm sick. I will say this also had a large impact on how safety, uh, how, how I took safety throughout the pandemic, right? Like for me, um, I was one of those people that was very cautious uh, because uh, I have a small child that I have to care for. And at the time of the pandemic, he was like just over a year old. So um, it was or sorry. No, he was younger than a year old. Uh, yeah. And and it was this weird thing where it's like I just we had this thing and I need to protect him. And so I taking every precaution necessary. And I think. You know, there's a point where I actually needed to go somewhere during the pandemic early days. And, you know, it was just after the mask mandate. And it was like one of those things where it's like, I don't want to talk to anybody. I don't want to go do anything, but I need to do this because I needed to get my my card on a certain system. Um, and it 
had to be done in a physical location to get that done. Uh, and I needed to go interact with people. But, you know, we we made sure that it was only me and one other person and that, you know, they opened the door and then, you know, there was hand sanitizer kind of everywhere. And it was it was this intense protocol just to go to a computer, you know, lice all the thing down before all that, I think, as a result of some of the actions that we you know took early on uh, as a company. So that's that's kind of where I'm at. Um, where, where did you think I was going to land with that? I so I specifically remember an instance where I watched you push really hard to when you were feeling awful. Um, so it, it's interesting that that's kind of changed in retrospect. Um, and and I mean the I think the pandemic made us all much more self aware of that kind of stuff and the impact it could have on others. Yeah. Um, but the, for me, like there, there like uh, I don't know if most of the audience knows this stuff. I have a few kind of weird conditions for my age and so things like being able to work remotely when you know i'm having rheumatoid arthritis issues or whatever it's definitely changed my ability to one save eto but also the fact that like i know that if i start feeling much better you know friday evening or saturday morning i can work all weekend to make up time that i wouldn't have before because i didn't have a laptop remote working was not accepted yada yada so it's 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 definitely one of those interesting changes in society in terms of just workplace culture affecting your outside perspective too. Yeah. Let's get into the study. I want to talk about this a little bit. Uh, you want to give us a little rundown here, Blake? Yeah. So let's go, let's go over just the high level details. So for the study, the researchers surveyed more than 300 working adults recruited through the Amazon mechanical Turk crowdsourcing website. Um, and they did this in three waves. So they first surveyed workers back in 2020 October to assess the COVID-19 climate of their workplaces. Then again in December 2020 about their attitudes towards CDC prevention guidelines. And then finally in February 2021, another survey round about their work and non-work behaviors when sick or exposed to COVID-2019. So three different waves using just a survey through crowdsourcing tools. Pretty simple and straightforward, but obviously yielded some interesting results. Um, yeah, I do, do want, want to mention that this was... So if you think about the time frame of this, right? October uh, is right before major U.S. holidays. Uh, so you yeah. have Thanksgiving in uh, November and Christmas and uh, other holidays in December. And you have February where all that kind of cools down. And so you have kind of three phases where... What's before, what's during, and what's after the holidays, where people are probably most likely to be more susceptible to waiving those, uh, I guess, values. You know, if if like family or friends are involved, I feel like during December and November, especially, there were probably a lot of people that didn't take the precautions that they needed to, and uh, you know, we saw that big spike in in uh, early December and January, yeah. right, because of it, and so. Um, it's interesting that they gathered all that data during this time. Um, Definitely a do, smart move to, in terms of like yeah. seeing how people actually, you know, reacted to the guidance at that point in time. Because this would be, you know, height of people taking time off, being away from the workplace, and then now they're still trying to see like how is that impacting your behavior in and outside of the workplace. Yeah. So, like, ultimately, basically, what they found is the headline, right? Basically, the things that happen in the workplace, employee attitudes towards the pandemic itself, or or these prevention measure, measures specifically, like mask wearing, 
or um, social distancing, that type of thing. Um, and ultimately, whether or not they showed up to work or other places while feeling ill uh, were basically um, driven by the work attitudes, right? So that's th- there's a significant connection between the workplace culture and their attitudes towards safety measures and going out when they're not feeling great. Um, I, I mean, I, I have a I have a couple extra things that we can talk about here, Blake. But I mean, is there anything else about the study that you want to bring up? Uh, I think about this. St- so here's something I actually want to go back and forth with you and you and I on because you yeah. have a different remote experience than I do. But let me relate it to the study. Um, so just want to bring up one of the points. So they talked about the one interesting aspect of this entire kind of study is that remote workers were even influenced by their workplace's culture um, or how the workplace was handling COVID-19 in terms of like safety measures, whatever it may be. So for you and I, it's going to be it is pretty different because you had a remote job already. Um, I think a lot of my kind of dealings with how the company was going to handle COVID-19 measures really hit me the most when I would go into the office. So I would have to go in for random things that are part of my job in like having to go through the process of taking my temperature, signing a piece of paper that's basically like binding that I came in and don't have COVID symptoms. Like it was a lot. It freaked me out. It made it hard to like go in and actually do the work I was supposed to be doing in the office. So then it made me, I think, in hindsight, much more cautious as I went to the grocery store or like going out anywhere from beyond my apartment complex. Uh, but for for you, how did how did your kind of workplace, you know, I don't I don't know how that how you would even put it, how their kind of like reaction to COVID did it impact you in any way, or was that just really you already had the remote job, so it was really you just putting in your own safety measures in place for you and your family? That's a good question, and I'm glad you asked it because so what happened early on is they I mean they took just because I'm remote, there's there's a physical office. And people still worked out of that physical office at the time I joined remotely. And so, um, you know, once everybody went home and was doing remote work, there were opportunities to go into the office, kind of like you described. Um, I'm far away from the office. It was not happening. You know, it's on the other side. It's on the other side of the country. Um, And so I wouldn't go into the office anyway. But whenever somebody did go into the office, um, it was shared with a couple extra businesses. And whenever a case came up or a potential exposure, even like the slightest mention, like, Hey, someone coughed. We got to shut down the office for two weeks. Like that, that's the kind of like, no one goes in, we're going to send in a hazmat team. Like, you know, that, that's the level that we're talking about there. Um, you know, don't, don't use the elevators cause they may have pressed the buttons. If you need anything, let us know. You got to sign papers like you, like you described, right? Yeah. It, it was one of those things. And I think seeing all those emails come through, I mean, not that I ever didn't take the pandemic seriously, but it also, you know, kind of hammered home the severity of it. Um, like, wow, yeah, like this is serious. Like, again, not that I ever thought that it wasn't, but I think part of that obviously transferred, right? And and like I said, I I had to do that instance where I had to go somewhere and do something during a pandemic early on when we didn't know it was very scary. No one knew what was going on. You know, Disneyland was shut down. What's going on? Uh, and so um, <laughs> it, was, it was one of those things where we didn't quite know what to do. It was just two people. It was me and somebody else. And we did our best. And, you know, 
th- there was no thermometer there was nothing like that but it was you know sure. one of those instances where we were both kind of freaked out about it and so we're like hey is this cool if you know we both wear masks and all that stuff it was you know so that's 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 my experience <laughs> yeah it's uh it's a tough one for sure but i guess like the major finding here to also that we can kind of go back and forth on or the the big applicable takeaway is that the researchers really were harping on and noting that many U- U.S. organizations have longstanding cultures, like I talked about earlier, of stigmatizing sick leave and encouraging people to still come to work when you're sick. Um, and it looks like, based off of the research that's done here, is hopefully by this helping to put all these workplace culture aspects of curbing COVID-19 in place that may relate to how people treat just being sick and coming into the office in general, or at least that's, that's kind of the goal here of trying to understand how workplace culture is affected in the long term. Yeah, I think that's, that's a good point. And I mean, if you think about like physical jobs that couldn't stop working because of the pandemic, right? Healthcare workers had to go in and I'm positive that they have a longstanding culture of, of uh, promoting stay home when you're sick. I bet you yeah. those attitudes transferred over and I bet you there are, um, you know, I can definitely see it where some of those other organizations that did stigmatize the sick leave, like you got to get this done. It's your responsibility. I can definitely see those kind of struggling with this too. Um, and, and people struggling with it, especially if their workplace culture is like that. I do have a couple points that I want to bring up here. Um, or I guess they're, they're more phrased as questions and we can kind of talk about them, but, um, some questions you might be having, like, how can we increase sort of these acceptance of these health measures to continue decreasing this sickness presenteeism? Like, what can we do? Let's talk about the application here. What can we do to, um, encourage some of those pro-social pro-health behaviors or pro-health workplaces, right? This is a tough question. I don't, necessarily have a great answer for it but what do you think yeah it's it's hard i think i think it comes down to like a leadership thing in some ways and if you and like creating policy and guidelines that way in terms of like trying to ingrain it somewhere but it if you don't feel comfortable like in your workplace not coming to not working or not coming to work whether that's remote or not working when you're sick that can that's just always going to be an issue unless like overall leadership is okay with the fact or has planned their projects in a way that it's you're not a single point of failure or whatever it may be but i think it it comes down to in a lot of ways communicating that to your your entire company and that comes i don't think that's necessarily from my limited perspective right that's not like on a project to project or team to team basis that's like a larger corporation needing to get that message out there putting it in their in their guidance or handbooks or whatever they put out to continue that along um because it i think some of these will stay some of these measures will stay in place for the interim right as as you see more people doing in-person meetings and all that kind of stuff so the 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 visual consequences of COVID-19. So seeing people still in masks and, you know, still distancing from each other in, in smaller workspaces, I think that will continue to, you know, get people to stay away from work if they don't feel good. But like in six to 10 months time, what's, what's different. Uh, I'm not really sure unless companies are actively trying to put this stuff into their own work culture and trying to get rid of the stigma itself of like, okay, COVID's over. Let's go back to how things were in 20, 
whatever 2019 and let's just you know work through work through the pain and the sickness and suffering and all that kind of stuff so i i don't know what the best options are i think there will still be lingering effects though from covid itself to help try and push us towards like don't come to work when you're sick yeah i agree with that um and i agree that right now leadership is probably the one sole way you can do it however there are ways that you can negotiate that especially as employees right there are start a union start a labor union with your company um this was you know the big fight against amazon like we want to unionize so that way we don't have to pee in bottles while we're in our trucks like that's the level that they're talking about and it's unsafe unhealthy um and you know if you have a labor union you can negotiate with management and say things like hey we don't want to have to feel this pressure when we are feeling ill is there anything like here's x y and z solutions that might help that and we want you to implement them and you have to do it because we say so we're the labor union um and so that's that's kind of the the um (laughs) larger structural change that needs to happen in order for the people to rise up and take control of their environments but i agree right now it's kind of leader in leadership's hands and and if you don't have a great leader or someone who encourages pushing through that pain, then it's going to be a little bit more difficult. Um, You want to take this next one? Sure. So next kind of question point we've got here. So will this lead, so this entire workplace change, lead to an increase in working from home, especially if people are feeling like they might be sick, but maybe well enough to work? Um, I certainly hope so. And I hope that it's definitely a cultural thing that companies will accept. It, although I, I don't know how it's actually going to pan out over time, because even some of the larger corporations that at during COVID-19 were the early people or early companies to say, like, work home, work from home for the rest of the year before it became kind of the norm. Um, even they're trying to bring people back into the office. And I think right. there are certain aspects of jobs like doing R&D stuff, whatever it may be. You have to kind of be in a physical space and sometimes. But I think allowing this option is... I think it's hypercritical for some of these companies to continue succeeding because there is, and I know you'll touch on this later on, but there is this whole culture that's kind of evolving. It's like, well, if you're not going to let me work remotely, where I was able to do that successfully for a a period of time, even if it was due to, you know, outside circumstances, uh, it fit my lifestyle better. So this is what I would rather do. So although I don't know if this will happen everywhere, I would say there's a large amount of companies are going to have to deal with people wanting to negotiate this into their their work life being able to work remotely at least x amount of days a week or if i'm if i'm not feeling well being able to work from my laptop or whatever um but i mean from your perspective nick what do you think this do you think this is going to be a long-standing thing for some people or is it just going to be like short-lived as covid kind of disappears yeah i hope so too i think a lot of companies had to relax their strict stances on you're only working when you're in the office, you know, and I think that's going to go a long way for allowing people to, if not work from home all the time, at least be able to, you know, put in a couple hours so they don't feel like they're losing a lot or feel like they're still doing the thing that they want to do. Like there are people that feel super passionate about their jobs 
And, you know, they will probably still want to work when they're sick, but they don't want to expose other people to that sickness. And so allowing them to stay home and, you know, I got the sniffles. I don't want to give everybody in the office this big mega corporation that I work for. I don't want to spread a cold through it. Like, let me just work from home today or tomorrow or through the week that I need to stay home. And what does that do? Well, I think companies are stupid if they don't go with it, because then it's like, well, you've just saved, you know, health of a bunch of your employees that... It's not going to slow everything down to a halt. Things are going to get done. And, you know, there's lasting effects that go on with health problems. If you feel like you can't rest and get over something, it might lead you to fatigue, which impacts your performance at work. There's a bunch of other things going on here, um, you know, and, and maybe we'll jump into those in the deep dive. Fatigue, performance, that type of thing when you're feeling ill and are at work. But, um you know, I do want to touch on one more point here is that we've kind of seen this impact that COVID has had on um, on basically the world. Like, what does this look like when you step back and prioritize your mental health or um, basically, you know, I want to live my life and not feel I don't know, beholden to a company? What, what kind of shift this will have on culture, um, you know, like pulling back? So, so I think... There was a story uh, that came out the other day, um, basically, that said, you know, people who are working remote would rather quit their job. Like a, a significant portion, I think it's like 30% of people would rather quit their job than go back to a hybrid scenario where they are working in the office and working remote or just working in the office. They'd rather quit because it's been so good for their mental health. Um, you know, and I think there are other ways that you can kind of. Other things that you can lump into this, like the five-day work week, uh, is that still going to be a thing? I mean, I know you have a book that you like to plug called, what is it, the three or four-day work week or something? Yep. Yep. <laughs> Four-hour work week. Yeah, there you go. There you go. Four hours a week. A week. Um, so, I mean, you know, I think there's a, there's a cultural shift happening, too, and I think companies have to wisen up to understand that the workers that they're looking for are not going to want to work for them. If unless they relax a little on what they're requiring, I don't know what your thoughts. Yeah, I I totally agree. I think there's a need to take a step back and really assess. So there there are definitely aspects of some some jobs that you need to be in a in a space to do them. You need to be in a on a factory floor for some of the some of the tech you might be working on. Or if you're you know building a physical product, you may need to be able to actually access that physical product you know, take beta test home with you or whatever it may be. But I think the the mental health thing's a big deal to me specifically. Um, and I, I know it is for a lot of people. And for for some people, you know, working from home is just not an option. They just don't like it. And I, I know I've come across a couple of friends who, like, they ended up, coworkers quit their jobs completely because they couldn't work from home. They just couldn't figure out how to make, make it work in, in their head. They like had to be in an office. So there's different types Mm -hmm. of people, but I do, I really do think it is the case. And I've talked to a few people over the past month about this is companies do have to be a good, a little bit more open because there's a lot of companies that are big that have moved to this remote culture now and don't have a problem with it. And they're, they're looking to bring in now more talent. So now, now that we're seeing a lot more remote jobs, you've got to kind of weigh the pros and cons for like, do you need to be remote? Do you need to have somebody on site in a building? Um, can you continue to grow at a rate that you wouldn't be able to in your current space by going remote? There's just a lot of factors that are worth taking into account. But I, I personally think a lot of like, 
bigger tech companies, people that do human factors or UX work are going to be looking for remote style jobs because of what the last, you know, over a year has kind of resulted in. And yeah. ultimately, I think it comes down to where you was the company still be able to be successful when it was remote? Um, and if you can answer that question, that might help kind of guide principles and things that you put in put in place as you go forward. Yeah, lots of benefits to working remote. All right, well, I just want to thank our patrons this week for selecting the topic, and thank you to our friends over at Washington State University for our news story this week. If you want to follow along, we do post the link to the links to the original articles in our blog, as well as our Slack and Discords as we find them. So join us over there for more discussion. We're going to take a quick break, and then we'll be back to see what's going on in the Human Factors community. Human Factors Cast brings you the best in Human Factors news, interviews, conference coverage, and overall fun conversations into each and every episode we produce. But we can't do it without you. The Human Factors Cast Network is 100% listener-supported. All the funds that go into running the show come from our listeners. Our patrons are our priority, and we want to ensure we're giving back to you for supporting us. Pledges start at just $1 per month and include rewards like access to our weekly Q&As with the hosts, personalized professional reviews, and Human Factors Minute, a Patreon-only weekly podcast where the hosts break down unique, obscure, and interesting Human Factors topics in just one minute. Patreon rewards are always evolving, so stop by patreon.com slash humanfactorscast to see what support level may be right for you. Thank you, and remember, it depends. Yes, huge thank you, as always, to our patrons, especially our honorary Human Factors cast staff patrons, Michelle Tripp. Patrons like you keep the show running, and thank you all so much for your continued support. I don't think people realize Patreons are the ones that keep the lights on over here. Like, we have a lot of stuff that we use, um, and, you know, it takes a lot to keep the show up and running. Uh, and truly, we couldn't do it without you. Um, so, thank you. Uh, you know, we have a couple ways in which you can help out there's a couple different uh uh options for you like the commercial said we also have a show sponsor role so if that's something that you want to do you can only one show sponsor a month so you know if you want to hop on that that's uh if you if you need to reach a bunch of human factors professionals that's your place um yeah with that uh i think we should get into uh the next part of the show blake it came from it came from that's right. It came from we got uh, Reddit this week. This is the part of the show where we search all over the internet. That graphic is so stupid. I'm sorry. We search you all over the internet to bring you topics the community is talking about. Uh, any topics, fair game, as long as Blake and I can talk about it. Uh, so <laughs> that's that's the criteria, and it relates to human factors and professional development, all that stuff. Um, we have we have three up this week. Uh, why don't we just go ahead and jump into this first one? How does ownership work at your company? This is written by Symphonica on the user experience subreddit. They go on to write, I'm a junior UX designer who's been uh, working at a large tech company for nearly a year now. Since joining, I've been confused and frustrated about how to own a project. My company has a lot of overlap between teams, which creates some confusion about who should own an initiative. Uh, they go on to write an example. I'll, I'll say the example. I think it's worth it. For example, a few months ago, I identified a big gap in our product that customers were complaining about, not having a page to view upcoming events. So I worked on some concepts, got some feedback from other designers, and presented it to the PM. She scoped my page way down to a tiny list that's now ham-fisted onto another page in our product and designed by someone else. 
A new designer recently joined that PM's team, and she has my same idea of having a separate events page, and the PM now seems to support it, which is great for the product, but also a bit frustrating since I had to go uh, to, since I wanted to own designing that experience as I've been stuck working on smaller projects. Also, because I'm on the events team while this designer is on the invite list team. I'm curious on uh, how ownership works at other companies. Do you get assigned projects from your PM? Do you need to take initiative and ask for work uh, to work on projects? How do you advocate for working on exciting projects? Blake, how does this work? Yeah, this is interesting. So I feel like I'm in a weird position for this, mainly because I... I am the lead UX designer only because I am the only UX designer on most of my projects. That's changing a little bit now, but a lot of times it, for me, it's fulfilling the design role. So it's not so much about what what actual like piece am I working on. It's like I'm working on the whole thing for two projects. Um, so I have a little bit less experience in terms of how it's doled out in larger companies. However, I will offer some some thoughts and insights because I've had I've had questions trying to figure out. How do I become a better design leader? And how do I how does this work at bigger companies who have, you know, very structured approaches or they set their product teams up completely differently and they have a lot more collaboration? So I've talked to a few friends that work at larger companies and the biggest thing that I have seen in terms of a commonality is being vocal about things you would like to do. And that means talking to your PM. And actually trying to get a sense of, hey, I want to own something. What What is there that's coming up that I can do? And it sounds like in this case, you it's definitely worth having a conversation with your PM about the idea that you brought forth. Even bringing up the, the concept of you watched another designer kind of create a similar concept um, and, and want to understand like what you could have done better in terms of trying to take ownership or moving to a new design team. Because uh, it sounds like you may just want to work on something different than what's in your kind of like business or product area right now. So I think having open dialogue with your management, even asking other designers about how their tracks and how they present their work to their PMs may be helpful as well. Because uh, getting diverse perspectives on this kind of stuff can help you figure out the best route for you to figure out how to grow and kind of keep moving forward. Uh, and and for exciting projects, I mean, I think the biggest thing there is kind of like showing interest when they come up and, you know, trying to figure out how to get your foot in the door, talking to teams that are working on them, talking to the developers that work on stuff, just really trying to get your foot in there. But Nick, from your perspective, like, what does it look like taking ownership for something? Ah, oh, geez, I struggle with this so much. Um, this, I, I struggle with trying to answer this. Um, I'll try my best. So I think... There's a couple pieces of context here that I'm missing in in the sense of um, how your excitement was communicated. Uh, I think excitement most of the time gets communicated by body language. So if this was an email that you sent to your PM saying, hey, I think this thing could work versus a physical conversation where you were like, hey, we really need to do something about this because users keep bringing this up. There's a very different way of approaching that problem. Um, I think communication is key. And I think especially when you can um, communicate in person or over video where somebody can see that visible excitement that you get about a project uh, can really come through. Now, I've had this happen to me where I've presented an idea 
and at the time it wasn't accepted and then somebody else brought it up and then it was accepted and I'm left going what what the heck you know like <laughs> I did this a couple months ago and it was not accepted then and now it is um and the other person's getting credit for it and that sucks that really sucks uh but you know I think the only way to get through that is to um say <laughs> Work it strategically into the way that you communicate about a thing. Be like, no, you're absolutely right. That is a great idea. And actually, I did a lot of preliminary work a couple months ago. I did a lot of preliminary work a couple months ago. Would you like to see it as a great place to start with this? So you bring in your experience into that thing and um, make yourself invaluable to it. Uh, you know, even if it is a side project, be like, hey, you know, I I started to notice this a couple months ago, and here's X, Y, and Z. You know, come to the table with it. If you're really excited about something, then uh, do your due diligence. I don't know. Um, the, the, in terms of working on exciting projects, um, I don't know. I I also struggle with that one because it's like I've tried to push my way onto exciting projects and. Maybe they weren't so exciting when I got there. Um, and I'm kind of like in the enjoy your scraps peasant camp right now. Like, look, the market out there is weird. And so it's like, you know, if if you if you're picky, then you might not have a job. But then also you don't know what you don't go for. What, what am I trying to say there? It's like you don't know what you can do until you try to get it. Anyway, that's pretty much. Yeah. I mean, just get there, see what it looks like. I mean, yeah, I, I had a, I have a colleague who just got accepted to a very um, pre prestigious company, uh, and it sounds like a ton of fun, and I'm really excited for them. Uh, and I, I'm not going to call them out on the show, but I am very excited about what they're going to do. Let's just say they are working for um, a large company, and uh, they are doing some really cool things. Let's say it's my dream job. Uh, so. <laughs> Very excited for them, and uh, they didn't know if they were going to take it because of a couple factors, but they they applied to it because they didn't know that they would get it, and they ended up got, getting it. So anyway, the lesson of the story, just go for things, I guess. Try I it. Yeah, Try you it. You never really know where you're going to end up. Uh, that was a mess. All right, why don't we get into the next one? <laughs> <laughs> uh, this one I feel like I can... Uh, talk about uh, how do you gently push back on clients demanding too much this one's from num num cookie on the user experience subreddit hi i'm generally a very blunt person that just graduated and started working as a ux uh, designer at at a corporate when i need to push back i just say something on the lines of no this is not possible for x y and z reasons Obviously, I've received some flack because of this and earned the reputation of being rude, which I totally understand. However, I am looking to change it, and I would love any examples, information, or courses that can help me improve. Thanks in advance. Blake, how do you gently push back on clients demanding too much? Tactics here. So this is, this is awesome. This sounds like somebody who recognizes not an issue, but they recognize a character trait they have. They're in a they seems like they're in a job or in a setting that doesn't react well to that. So this is this is great. This is somebody who has a lot of self-awareness and wants to kind of change the way that they're tackling something. I think the biggest part here, I'm making a lot of assumptions about this person, so forgive me on that side, but I think a big one is going to be being prepared to hear something and you're going to have a gut response to it. 
which may be correct because a lot of times you'll know like there there's no way we have scope to do x y and z this doesn't make any sense but it's kind of being ready and gut checking yourself when you start to hear yourself make that sound of no they're for one two and three we definitely can't do this there's no way to handle it and you got to think about how to present that strategically to your your stakeholder your team whatever it may be and sometimes that goes back to going pulling up and zooming out to the project plan like and really tying it to specific milestones that you guys have left so saying like okay these ideas are valid if if they are provide rationale if they're not but let's say all the ideas brought to you are valid but the timeline is just not there there's no way to get it done so you would have to present the fact that things some things would have to come off of the table in terms of what's going to be your mvp let's say if you want to go down this route of doing the new x y and z feature and so it just becomes more of a practice of how you present yourself and your kind of rationale for why something can't fit in the design scope right now, but also being open to saying like, we could do this, but we would need to do this in a larger time scale, or we would need more money to be able to pull this off. So it's, I think the good thing here is this person's gut instincts may be correct, but in terms of how they're presenting, you know, positive solutions to what people are asking of them, that's really where they'll have to spend a lot of time kind of figuring out how to present that stuff. And that comes with time because you, you work on more projects, you understand how to rescope them, you understand how what the trade-offs are of doing different features at different times based on time, budget, and development, all that kind of stuff. But Nick, how do you kind of push back when demands get a little bit too high? Yeah, that's uh, a skill. Um, there I think what you said is is great, right? Like, s- slow yourself down. Don't respond immediately. Let it marinate for a little bit. Make people feel like they're heard. Uh, you know, don't... <laughs> I feel like there's, there's two approaches to this, right? There's one... Um, okay, there's one, jumping in immediately and calling somebody out when somebody says, we need to do this because... And before they even get on to the because someone calls them out, right? Cuts them off, yeah. calls them out. We can't do that X, Y, Z. There's the second approach where you listen to somebody's entire thought process and then you say X, Y, Z. That's a little bit more helpful. People tend to think of themselves as really important, uh, like podcast hosts who just want to have a podcast to talk about things every week. Anyway, point is people feel heard when they're allowed to complete their thoughts and um, so maybe just say it afterwards. Now, there's a third approach that I'm going to suggest here that's worked for me. And your mileage may vary, but I've had pretty su- pretty good success with this. If something needs to be done or this, uh, you know, whoever says uh, a client says something needs to be done, um, then ask questions. How might that might work? How might that work? You know, like what do you think is the right solution to that? And maybe they themselves will back themselves into a corner and be like, ah, it's not possible because of this. Okay. All right. You know, and, and I think that's probably the most tactful approach is to ask them questions that allow them to get to that conclusion on their own. That doesn't make you come off as a uh, rude person. It, makes you come off as an inquisitive person and perhaps someone that is considering all angles 
without being rude, right? You're simply asking questions about how that might be done. Um, and, you know, if you reverse logic them into <laughs> thinking, okay, no, it can't be done, then you've won. I, I consider that a win. Um, now, there's also, like, if you're talking to clients, there's also what's on paper for your expected that you're expected to do. And in most cases, unless you're a freelancer, in which case is a little different, but in most cases you have some protection for that role. There's either somebody that will um, go back to the negotiating table with them and say, you know, I think that's, that's a great idea. Let's check with so-and-so to see if we can add that to the work. And they will negotiate on your behalf to keep it the original thing, right? You, I mean, you tell them in private that, don't don't adjust this. This is not what we're on the hook for. Um, in a lot of cases, you have that protection. If you're a freelancer, I don't know what to tell you other than, hey, you know, like we we agreed on this. I'm happy to talk about what that scope might be like if we were to pursue that route. You know, I think I think that's two ways of going about it. Yeah, if you're a freelancer, get re- talk to other people that are freelancers. Get really good at writing contracts. Because yeah. that will help you a lot, and then you can rescope stuff as you need to. Yeah, Blake, let's save this other one for next week, and let's just get into one more thing. This is do need it. no introduction. This is just one more thing where we talk about stuff going on in our lives. Blake, what do you got? What's going on with you? All right, this is random and odd, but so I think it was last week, two weeks ago, two years ago. I don't remember when it was. Last time we did a podcast, I talked about like how awesome I was in a or how awesome I thought Google's AI um, designer patterns library was. Ooh, the follow-up. And, yeah, and so, and, like, I was I was really stoked. Like, I can't even tell you. I sat on that website, went through so many things. I'm going through their their machine learning course right now because it's, it's just a thing I'm interested in and know zero about. But this is kind of the flip side of all of that stuff. And this is a, a thing that I don't, I don't know. It came into my email box randomly, so I wanted to talk about it and just, throw it out there so people are aware of it and voice my own concern. I'm just a guy who wants to be heard on a podcast, I guess. But so Google is like a lot of companies. They're throwing a lot of money into artificial intelligence development. It seems like that is going to change the world completely. It's going to change the technology landscape as we understand it. Um, But with, I'm not going to say it. I'm not going to say the Spider-Man thing. But with that kind of really intense new technology that some people like Elon Musk are not even really sure about or government officials are kind of concerned about, there needs to be some some people behind it that are paying attention and, and doing the research and saying like, mm, that's dangerous from an ethics standpoint or just basically keeping technology in check. And so most companies have either an ethics set, set of ethics standards uh, Google definitely does. We've talked about it on the show before. Um, and they have committees that are focused only on doing research that focuses on the ethics of AI development and how it will eventually end up in products. However, Google has recently fired fired and then lost some of its main principal researchers in this AI ethics group. And I thought that was odd because the, rash, the reason of what the reason for why one of the main researchers was fired all comes down to a paper that was written. Now, Google, I don't know if you know, you know this, Nick, I certainly didn't know how much they put into research, but they put like multiple billions of dollars into research mm-hmm. for AI, for anything. And so they have lots of money that's tied into research stuff. They don't have to release all the papers that they write or all the stuff that they 
all this all the research they do they don't have to make publications out of all of it but i found it really disturbing that this particular researcher was you know a big big in the community of ai research which i know nothing about to be completely fair about it but the fact that google would not release whatever this paper was that was so condemning that they decided they needed to fire the researcher um it just concerned me because I'm a big proponent of Google's products. I know a bunch of people that work there, and I just I enjoy the company's kind of ethos that it puts out into the world. But me knowing so little about AI, it became concerning to see that the that there's a way that we may not be getting all the research shared with us out in the, out in the ether or whatever it may be. Um, that some of these companies may may be afraid of some of the results that they're getting from whatever kind of ethical studies they end up doing. Um, and I just thought it was something that would be worth making other people aware of to learn more about what's going on in terms of ethical design, whether it's machine learning or AI or whatever it may be, and paying attention to that over the next you know, five to ten years, because I think it will have a large impact in how that technology kind of develops and the products we start seeing that come out from it. Yeah. Would you say Google is not making human factors accessible? <laughs> <laughs> I. So I want to, I do want to be clear. I think it's I think based off what I've read and the digging that I could do, it is unclear to me just some simple simple dude that has a human factors background and does design. Um it is not clear to me what's actually going on. It's just clear that they're not going to release a paper, but there's there's nothing there's no not enough specifics for me to say like, "Ooh, Google's doing something scary or bad." It's like, right. no, they just—they're not going to release a paper for whatever sets of reasons. Things seem cloudy around it, um, and they're having a hard time figuring out. Like I think a lot of other companies are, who are probably not getting press over it at the moment. They're trying to figure out how the hell this is all going to work. How do we keep ethical design in the research that we're doing so that one we can we can compete in the business landscape so that we can be the first people to reach the AI summit, get it into our products. But how do we do it in a way that's not going to create biased, you know, AI systems or create, you know, privacy issues. I think it's a giant ball of wax to try and solve. And we're kind of seeing the throes of it at the moment in a large company. Yeah. Great. One more thing Uh, for me, um, this frustrating experience, I mentioned it in the pre-show. I want to mention it here. So, we have tickets for a convention that we thought we would be here in town for, but we're moving now. Uh, and so it's Star Wars Celebration Anaheim 2022. <laughs> and uh, first off, there's a whole bunch of frustrating things about this uh, convention. It's supposed to be held this year, and then they pushed it to next year, and then they moved it up next year. So they moved it three times already. I have our tickets, and they were very expensive. I think they were something like 400 each or something like that because it's multiple days. Anyway... Hotel reservations went live today, and um, they have this virtual queue where you get in line, you wait, you wait, you wait, you get in. It wasn't live until noon. However, people that purchased higher tier tickets, so there's like the Jedi Knight ticket, and then there's the regular tickets, they got in earlier. Anyway, we had uh, everything ready to go. We got in. And we wanted to get from, you know, this day to that day. And it would only let you reserve for the days of the convention. So we wanted to pad it with one day on either side. And they would only let you do the specific days. So it was very Uh. frustrating. Um, And then the hotels that we wanted specifically were gone. uh, And 
you know, there's there's people who only have tickets for two days or one day or something like that. And I feel like this would have been a much better process if they had done something like, okay, everybody with four day passes gets in at this time. And then two hours later, everybody with three day passes gets in at this time and then, you know, kind of gated it that way. Um, and so it's very stressful because we have like our tickets. We don't have a hotel. We don't have a plane. You know, everything's kind of still in limbo and we're still planning on tacking sure. a couple days on, which means we have to get a different hotel you know, for those extra days, it's oh. the whole thing. It's it's really dumb that they couldn't figure this out, and conventions need to figure some stuff out. Anyway, human factors behind that was terrible. Uh, that's my one more thing for this week, and that's it for today, everyone. Let us know what you guys think of the news story this week. Uh, you can hang out with us on our Slack or Discord or get in touch with us on any of our social channels. Visit our official website, sign up for our newsletter, stay up to date with all the latest human factors news. If you like what you hear, you want to support the show, leave us a five-star review. Tell us your friends about us or consider supporting us on Patreon if you can. And as always, links to everything, all our socials and all the website stuff will be in the description of this episode. Mr. Blake Ardstorff, thank you for being on the show today. Where can our listeners go and find you if they want to talk about BS convention sign-up things? If you guys want to talk about BS convention sign-up things, you can always find me across social media at Don't Panic UX or inside of our Discord at Blake. As for me, I've been your host, Nick Rome. You can find me streaming on Twitch Tuesdays at 1 p.m. Pacific time for office hours and social media at Nick underscore Rome. Thanks again for tuning in to Human Factors Cast. Until next time, it depends. Spacecraft, railway locomotives, nuclear submarines, healthcare, jet aircraft, these are all examples of highly technical systems and organisations, and all have one particular thing in common. They all involve humans. Humans who want to do amazing things and are using technology to achieve them. They all have something else in common. They have amazing people ensuring that the users who are involved can do what they need to do, are safe when they do so, and have the optimum user experience. These people are Human Factors practitioners, and on 1202, the Human Factors podcast, they talk to me, Barry Kirby, about what they do, sharing their career paths, highlighting their ideas and best practices, and fundamentally raising awareness of our discipline. Find us on 1202podcast.com, on social media, and on your favourite podcast directory, because it's more than just common sense.